Show us Christ. I'm thankful to be able to preach uh, this evening. Grateful for the opportunity to support Rich and his family and their work in Thailand. Uh, we support Richard, and uh, you're in for a treat as he leads with the uh, hymn sing. You'll be delighted. But uh, let us pray for the very thing we just sang. Father, we are grateful for the Word of God, the living Word by which we are convicted of sin, by which we are made alive to the things of God, your Word and Spirit working in concert to save our souls. Father, I pray that you bless now the preaching of the Word. I pray that you bless that Word to our hearts. And by your Holy Spirit, may we have power to go out from this place to serve you as sons and daughters of the living God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. My text this evening is Ephesians chapter 1, the first 12 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. Beloved, this is the word of God. In 1984, my first year of seminary, I attended the Urbana Conference, sponsored by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. This conference is designed to inform Christian college students about global issues and issues that missionaries face the world over. Various missions agencies would come, they would set up booths and tables and display their wares and information to inform young men and women about their particular works in the world. They're hoping to recruit students to join with them in their work. With 18,000 Christians gathered in the field house at the University of Illinois at Urbana campus, that's in Champaign, Illinois, the air was charged with excitement as the glory of the Lord was all around. And there were, can you imagine that? 18,000 Christians gathered in one place, eager to serve Christ the King. And the air was charged with the glory of God and young men and women who were there eager 
to find their place in missions. Now, I was, again, in my first seminary experience, my first semester, and I wasn't sure that I was called to pastoral ministry. So I was there to see if the Lord was going to call me to some missionary work wherever he would send me. Now, I was especially excited during this conference. It's a five-day conference. Uh, but I saw that the keynote speaker was Eric Alexander, Scottish Presbyterian preacher. And the conference theme was Faithful in Christ. And Alexander, on that first night, he opened the scriptures to the passage I just read and began to give us the mandate for missions uh, seen in God's doctrine, the doctrine of election. Now, uh, I rejoiced to receive such a message, but there were students there who were shocked and surprised. Uh, how could it be that our reason and motivation for missions is found in this controversial doctrine of election? They wanted to know. Uh, many of these were likely members of churches that avoided or skimmed over the doctrine of election on, and predestination, or some of them likely taught the Arminian view, the semi-Pelagian view, that uh, God's election or choosing us for salvation was conditioned upon our choosing him and his foreknowing that in eternity past. But clearly and powerfully, Pastor Alexander preached, and it was a powerful night. The doctrine of election was presented to us as the underlying mandate for missions. Now, it is this thought that I want to express uh, to you this evening. Because God the Father has chosen a people in view of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, He, that is Jesus, will not come and establish the new heavens and the new earth until all the elect have professed saving faith. And though it is by the Spirit's power that we have the gift of faith to believe in Jesus, uh, we who are God's elect are yet called to preach the gospel. We are called to believe. We are called to do the work of discipling people uh, in the kingdom of God. We are called to do the work that Christ has ordained for us to do. Now let me speak to this matter of explicit and implicit mandates. When we think of a mandate, we assume a definitive command given to us to follow and obey. Now, Jesus has given us uh, explicit commands for the mission's work. After his resurrection, of course, Jesus gives his apostles this charge in Matthew 28. All authority has, uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there's a very explicit mandate. Why do we go and make disciples of the nations? Because Jesus very clearly commands us so to do. You might also look in the book of Acts chapter 1, right before his ascension into heaven. Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem, which was a spiritual wilderness for them. It, it was in Jerusalem, or just outside of Jerusalem, that Jesus was crucified. But he tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem. And then in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, he says, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. And this statement then becomes an outline for Luke's book of Acts, the record of the works of the apostles. And so I imagine that there were students frustrated with Pastor Alexander's message because the Bible gives us some very clear mandates to go into all the world and make disciples. Why? Why? And how could you say the doctrine of election and predestination is the underlying mandate for our missionary endeavor? Now, this Scottish preacher, uh, he identified this as an implicit mandate for missions. The sovereign election of God the Father, choosing a people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was enthralled with this winsome Scott and his preaching. But as I said, many were not. Let's consider how this passage ought to motivate us to the work of missions and even perhaps to supporting Rich Ernst in their work in Thailand. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, when we think of God's blessings, we usually think of those things that are beneficial to our lives here and now. Answers to our prayers as we intend them and hope that God will answer them. We long to be blessed with material comforts, uh, financing for the new car, the new home, uh, a job that will afford me uh, a life of luxury and ease, perhaps. Uh, or we might want peace in our families. No family conflict, Lord, end the conflict between siblings or growth in our churches. The more mature among us might be praying for opportunities to share, share the gospel of Christ with family and friends. However, Paul is reminding us of those blessings that are at times imperceptible to us because they originate before the world was spoken into existence and they are secured for us in heavenly places. Where, by the way, Scripture teaches we are seated with Christ in those heavenly places. And yet you're sitting right here now in faith, OPC, in Paul Tavern. Now notice these lists of blessings. Chosen before the foundation of the world. And I recently shared a message in which I remembered uh, grade school when we'd go out in the playground and we were uh, the two best athletes in the class would be captains and then they would stand apart from the other students and they would begin to choose players for kickball, dodgeball, or softball. And of course you go and you pick the ones that are the best athletes. And then you have those stragglers that are the last to be chosen because they're not so great an athlete. And then there may be even that one guy, you know, or the, the one captain will say, you take him and we'll let you bat first. No, it's not like that in God's kingdom. There's no good reason for why He chose us. There's no mention in this passage of a condition that we fulfill by which then God chooses us. But chosen why? How about this blessing? To be holy and blameless in God's sight. Imagine that. 
we, and, and I'm speaking to Presbyterians, I imagine most of you, if not all of you, we know that we are wretches. When we sing Amazing Grace, and I think we're singing that at the end of our service, when we sing Amazing Grace, let's say, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, I know you believe that. You know, you really believe you're wretches. Uh, but wonder of wonder, we were, we were chosen to be holy, that is, set apart for God's purpose, and blameless, sinless. Imagine that. And all in God's sight. You know, it's as if, uh, and when I was in college, I, I was uh, an art student, an art major, and I did metal, metal rework, and we, in the uh, class where we made jewelry, we also did lapidary work, that is, uh, cutting and polishing stones, you know, and I was amazed. Students would bring in these stones and outwardly they were just so ugly. I'm thinking, you're going to make a piece of jewelry out of this. But we learned how to cut them. We learned how to display the intricate designs and the pattern of the stone. And then you, you grind and you buff and you polish. And what was on the outside a very ugly, ugly thing is transformed into something beautiful. Imagine that. You are chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight meaning God looking over you with pleasure and with joy at what he is fashioning, the person he is making you to be after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wretched sinners by nature, estranged from God, headed to hell and damnation, justly made by the grace of God, holy and without blame. Well, and then there's more spiritual blessings. While we may understand ourselves to be servants of Christ, you must realize that you serve Jesus uh, not as a slave, but as a son, as a daughter, adopted and brought into God's family. Imagine that. God is delighted and eager to call us His children. And uh, that is one of those spiritual blessings in love, he predestined us. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, the beloved, the body of Christ. Imagine that, you know, with all that we see and hear regarding gender identity, the destruction of the institution of marriage as God has made it, you realize we are, as believers in Jesus, part of the Beloved. We are the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. And all this is accomplished by the work of Jesus. In verse 7 we read, In Him, in Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption. That which was lost, being born into this world, sinners estranged from God, that has been redeemed. God redeemed us. He bought us back to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the price He paid on the cross. And what does that redemption hold for us? Well, it was through His blood and it holds for us the forgiveness of sins. Man, I can't imagine a greater blessing than that to you know when you've blown it. You know when you've sinned. You know those things of which you are ashamed and have been ashamed of. All those things, by faith in what Christ has done, gone. He looks at you through the... God the Father looks at you through the eyes of Christ uh, and He loves you. 
you're no longer uh, facing his wrath, but you are now a person blessed as a son, as a daughter. And all this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Wasn't stingy, not sparingly did he pour out his grace on us, but he lavished it on us. He poured it out upon us generously. And all this, all this, first and foremost, to the praise of His glorious grace. You know, there's real wisdom and uh, given in those catechism questions. The very first catechism question, what is man's chief end? I love it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, one of the members in my church got up to make an announcement one morning looking out over the congregation and she was taken aback because she looked out and she says, this is what the pastor sees every Sunday morning? Can't you people smile? Come on! You know? And uh, But we ought, of all people, we ought to be people even despite what we see going on in the world. We ought to be a people filled with joy and thanksgiving and gratitude. All this, first and foremost, for the praise of His glorious grace. Now, these blessings in which any true believer ought to rejoice, but many of the students on that night, they were not rejoicing. They were confused. Many of them filled with consternation. And some were angry because they believed that the InterVarsity organizers had let a Scottish wolf into the sheepfold proclaiming heresy. The doctrine at issue was predestination in the manner that Pastor Alexander explained it. And let me give you the issue at hand. Again, verse 5, the latter part of verse... I don't know why the people who numbered the verses put the last or the first two words of that sentence in verse 4. But in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Now listen, all Christians who say they believe the Bible must have an understanding of the doctrine of election and predestination. Those words are biblical terms. They are in the Bible. They are there in the Scripture. But in love, the Father predestined us. And His choice of us was unconditional. There is no good reason why He should have chosen us. But many of the people there in the field house believed that God, in His foreknowledge, looked down the corridors of time and imagined those events wherein you would get the gospel into your presence somehow, either attract, or you'd read the Bible, or you'd go forward to the Billy Graham crusade, or you, you would hear a preacher preaching the gospel, and, and the choice was put to you, believe, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved, and you, of your own accord and free will, you chose to believe in Jesus. And therefore, God, for knowing this, you choosing Him, therefore He chose you. So in other words, in their view, there was a condition for your election, your faith. But think about it. If we, we look down, if God looks down the future uh, in the corridors of eternity, what faith is he going to see in us? What does the book of Ephesians say? You know, I quote it, and every Christian should learn to quote Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Now, I learned it in the NIV, so bear with me. You know, 
For by grace are you saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. So, if God is looking down the future to see the faith by which we will choose Jesus, what faith is he seeing but the faith that he gives to us as a gift and not of any work on our accord? And so, the question you might have is, how did I know that there were many students upset at Eric Alexander's message that night. Well, after the evening messages, we were all to go back to the dormitories. In my case, there was an overflow crowd, so they set us up, the guys that came with me, they put us in a fraternity house. You could tell that the frat guys, they had to take down all the pinups, you know, they had to cover a lot of things because we were going to stay in the bunch of Christian guys are going to stay in our, our fraternity house, brothers. Take all the pornography down. And, uh, you know, thankfully they did that. Uh, it was uh, a time. But I was a little late getting back to the house. I don't know if someone sidetracked me and maybe I saw a friend or I was, as I'm going down, I'm hearing students in confusion about the messages that were given that day and the message that evening. But I came in to a discussion. See, we would go back to where we were uh, staying and we were to engage in a conversation, a led discussion on what we heard and how it affected us. And I come in and I hear these young men apoplectic, you know, that they were, that this guy at our inner varsity uh, uh, Urbana conference was teaching us about predestination as Calvin taught it. And they were upset. And I listened. I just sat there and listened. There was one young man that says, how can I be motivated to go into the world and do missionary work when salvation from beginning to end is all God's? What am I to do? This doesn't motivate me to do anything. And they would go on like this. And I thought, well, here I am, my first semester of seminary. This is the time to test my mettle. And I began to say, listen, the view that you guys espouse is really the one that can lead to discouragement because you teach and understand that it, it is of a man's own free will that he chooses Christ. But he can also choose to resist the gospel in his own power. And so you're saying that it is possible for absolutely everyone who hears the gospel message for all of them to resist the gospel of Christ and the word of God. To resist the Spirit's call. And so, ultimately, in your view, you have to say that there might be no one who will come to Christ. In the view that Dr. Alexander has expressed this evening, the mandate, the underlying mandate for why we go into the world and preach Christ and teach Christ and live for Christ is because there are the elect of God who will come. When God will prepare our way. And I, you know, uh, Sproul talks about many Arminians really being inconsistent Calvinists. Because when they do things like gather to pray for the people that they're going to meet that night, then pray that the Lord would open their hearts. During that evening, I went to, to uh, Acts chapter 13, where Paul is in the last leg of his first missionary journey. And as his practice was, he would go to the Jew, 
and then there would be pushback and resistance, and then he would go to the Gentile. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, uh, Paul was in that experience of the pushback from the, Jew, the Jewish leaders. Uh, and we read in verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and he's speaking to the Jews here, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And listen to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? As many as were appointed or marked for eternal life believed. You see, the other view has, has it backwards. As many who believe on the gospel, when you believe, therefore you are appointed to eternal life. And I said, think of the ramifications of this. God has a people that he's chosen in Christ. And he's also ordained the means by which they hear the word, by which they come to Christ. And that's our part. We're called to encourage missionary endeavor. We're called to teach people about the work of missions. We're called to read the biography of missionaries and to see their work and their mistakes, many mistakes. You know, I have in-laws who, in uh, Hawaii, there was great missionary endeavor in Hawaii, but there were a lot of mistakes made by it. But still, I have a, a sister-in-law who is a believer in Jesus. She's a native-born Hawaiian, but she's a sister in Christ because of the missionary endeavor on the island of Hawaii. And so, I think, I hope that there were students that evening that were encouraged by my messages. I hope to have alleviated and uh, assuaged some of their uh, consternation. But for me, that Urbana conference was crucial in this. As I said, I wasn't sure that the Lord was calling me to pastoral ministry. It's a five-day conference. And one of the... Uh, there was a, a scheduled event where it was a panel of three pastors. Uh, they were Gordon McDonald, John Piper, and Frank Barker. Frank Barker is a PCA pastor, John Piper Baptist, and Gordon McDonald, I'm not sure if he's in ministry uh, to this day. But anyway, they were discussing the role of the local church and the pastor in missions. And they spoke about how important it is, yes, that there are people, men and women, who go into all the world to make disciples. But how can they go if there aren't people who are at home, staying at home, and using the gifts that God has given them to make a living, and who will support, not just through giving. I tell you this, I believe that some of the greater support we can render to missionaries is our uh, focused and directed and informed prayer. I believe, yes, they need our funds. They need our money. But they also especially need our prayers for God to work in their ministry. And so after this panel discussed this, the importance of uh, the pastor and the local church and missions, the Spirit was at work in my heart. And I believe that my call to the pastorate was confirmed in that conference because I thought, yes, 
That is what I can do. In the local church, I can be the cheerleader for missions. I can be encouraging to young people to consider missionary endeavor. I can take kids on short-term missions trips. And I can, uh, at Presbytery, bring missionaries so that they might be supported by other churches in the Presbytery. That was the work that I was going to do. And I firmly believe, listen, brothers and sisters, uh, these are days when we cry out, <laughs> Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, and there are days, there are bad days that we have when we wake up and we think, oh Lord, please take me today. Take me today. We have in our church, uh, I call him affectionately, our church relic, 100-year-old Arthur Lewis, who's been a real pillar of Fairfield Presbyterian Church, uh, fighting the battle to get them out of the liberal denomination uh, in the church. He's played the organ. He's been Sunday school superintendent. He's taught Sunday school. He's been the clerk of session, battled with the liberal presbytery. Uh, you name it, he's done it. And he, he, you know, his health is failing. And so he'll say, I don't know why the Lord keeps me around. I say, you can breathe, right? You're breathing still, Art, right? You can speak, right? You can think. I said, Art, while you are alive, you can pray. That is an important work for us to do. Christ is not going to come until all his elect profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even at a hundred years old, you can pray. And I ask that you pray, especially for your pastor, because you know I need it. So, beloved, we're here to uh, support and encourage the missions work of Richard and Rachel Ernst. Uh, let me pray as we uh, end this time and move to our time of uh, hymn sing. Father, we are grateful. And how I remember vividly that evening, especially that first evening of messages by Dr. Alexander and his preaching, Father, which powerfully expressed that the reason why we do missionary endeavor is because you've chosen the people to yourself for no good reason other than your mere pleasure and the purpose of your will. And you are working, O Lord, in us. You've ordained the means by which they come, our work of speaking about Jesus, of living for Jesus, of declaring Jesus and the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us open doors whereby we may share our faith. And Father, for those missionaries gifted and empowered by your word and spirit to go into a foreign land like Richard and Rachel are in Thailand, Lord, we pray that you would help us to show interest and learn of their mission and pray intelligently and specifically, particularly for their work, that they might be supported by your word and spirit. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to be generous uh, like Paul encouraged the people to be generous in their giving to the Jerusalem church. Lord, help us, help us to support this work in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now if you would let us...